Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. On this episode of Killer Jeans. Well, they X-ringed it. I mean, it was uh, just almost a, a dead center, you know, bullseye. A Texas beer mogul is shot dead at his own front door. And the victim has some chilling last words. And I've been told Ash's last words to be, they got me. I'm dead. Who killed Ash Rao? The following episode of Killer Genes contains graphic and sensitive information and material. Listener discretion is advised. Emmy-nominated true crime journalists bring you cases like you've never heard them before. Hear first-hand accounts from the victims' families, private investigators, lawyers, law enforcement, and even the convicted. Giving you a complete 360 of the case like no one else can. I'm Melissa McCarty. I'm Kelly McClear. And this is Killer Jeans. Ash Rowell was a 35-year-old father of three. He was devoted to his family and his love of craft beers. Living in an affluent suburb of Houston, Texas, Ash was making a name for himself in the beverage business. But he never lost sight of his giving nature. Ash was always a real jovial character. Everybody liked Ash. Charlotte Rowell remembers her son fondly, as any devoted mother would. She was... um, kind and considerate and loving, uh, really, even as a child, really tenderhearted and cared about other people. Um, he was one of those kids who always at Christmas time wanted to go give toys for kids that didn't have any toys. And then as an adult, he continued doing the same thing. In fact, right before he died, every Christmas, he would dress up like Santa and go to the Children's Hospital in Houston and give out gifts to the kids that were stuck there over Christmas. So, and I remember a couple of Christmas, he, you know, I talked to him afterwards and he got tears in his eyes. So he's real kind-hearted, real generous, really giving person. Uh, just the best son growing up. We had a really wonderful um, growing up period with Ash. And then when uh, he became a father, he just absolutely loved and adored and lived for his kids. But Ash Rowell would not live to see his kids grow up. He was gunned down at his own front door on February 1st, 2013. So what happened on February 1st of 2013? My husband and I were walking home from dinner. I think it was probably around 7.30. It was starting to get dark. And we walked past Ash's house, and I said, maybe we should go in and just say hello. And then I thought, no... You know, it's bedtime, and I thought, they're probably getting the kids ready for bed. We won't bug them. Uh, We'll get talk in the morning. I saw the fire truck and the paramedics go by, and I went out in the front yard because they were on a street, and we're very close neighborhood, and it stopped in front of Ash's house. So I told my husband um, I'd be right back. My husband was in 
the later throes of Alzheimer's. And so he wasn't really, he, I had just picked him up at the memory care center and brought him home for dinner that night. I was planning on taking him back in a little bit. And I just said, don't leave. I'll be back. I need to go check on something. And walking down the sidewalk, the next door neighbor of Ash came out and I said, Eric, what on earth? And he said, you need to get in there fast because it's not good. And I thought somebody got hurt really badly, but I walked to the front door and it was wide open and there was blood everywhere. And I looked over and I saw Ash lying over in the office. Uh, They had like a living room and then there was a family room where Leslie had her office and I saw him lying on the floor and I went to go to him and one of the paramedics came and stopped me and said, you don't need, still need to go there. And I said, I'm his mother. I, let me let me get to him. And he said, no. And he, that's when he said he's gone. And you know, those you when somebody tells you they can't believe those words, you just can't. You cannot grasp. You, it, your mind won't let you. So I turned, and Leslie was there, and she was hysterical. And I just said, what happened? What happened? And she said. Uh, he was cleaning the front closet. The, he was cleaning the closet by the front door. I think the shotgun went off. I said, let's see, there's no shotgun in the closet. I mean, they had a lot. Of course, their weapons were locked. They had small kids in the house. And uh, I just remember her just saying, my life is over. My life is over. Phil Waters spent 30 years in law enforcement and 25 of those years with the Houston Police Department as a homicide detective. Waters is considered one of the nation's top interrogators, even landing himself a series on investigation discovery called The Interrogator. In 2013, Waters and his partner Brian Harris were assigned to the murder of Ash Rowell. So we ended up getting involved in it because it became, for lack of a better term, it it was... It was a whodunit to begin with, and it became rather complicated early on because to the degree that, that Ash, uh, the incident itself certainly lent itself to a, a hit, for lack of a better term, again. And it was a one-shot deal uh, standing in his doorway at his house and his wife and their children and a neighborhood uh, child was over there for a pizza party. And uh, Ash had just come home and apparently had presumably, you know, been in the shower, was, had a pair of gym shorts on and, and was just going to, you know, relax with the, with the party with the kids. And he, for whatever reason, don't know if it was a doorbell, knock on the door, Somebody got his attention, whatever it was, but he answered the front door and one shot, X-rayed him, and he walked into the kitchen dining area where the kids were and where Leslie was, fell on the floor, bleeding, and made some comment to the effect that they shot me or they killed me or 
they've done this to me. But we were never able to determine. Now, this is according to Leslie. And, at you know, flash forward, we were never able to determine, you know, who they was or who that person was. Charlotte remembers the moment she learned just what happened to Ash from Detectives Waters and Harris. When Brian Harris came down, I said, what happened? He said he opened the front door and somebody shot him directly in the heart. And he said, you know, you usually have a a minute and a half to two minutes when you get wounded like that. The, The brain still has enough oxygen that you are aware you are still conscious and you know what happened. And supposedly, uh, I think this came out later, that, of course, Leslie heard the noise and went to Ash, and Ash was still alert and, uh, and knew what was happening. And I've been told by Brian Harris and Phil Waters that Leslie reported Ash's last words to be, they got me, I'm dead. And um, they both have suggested to me that most of the time a a person that's been, that they know they're dying, they make some kind of affirmation as to who got them, not just they got me. So they were, I think they were concerned about that. You know, that if if somebody's come to your front door and Ash was in a state, he was, you know, he has pajama bottoms on and I don't believe he had a top on. And I don't believe he would have opened the front door to someone in that state of undress unless he knew them. Before Detective Waters can get to a suspect lineup, there was the issue of the crime scene itself. On the evening of of Ash's murder, can you kind of paint the picture for us and set the stage a little bit? Now the caliber of the weapon has never been released, so I'm not going to I'm not going to talk about that. But um, the um, suffice to say, we've never found. Uh, we've heard talk about a gun, but we've never, you know, we obviously never found the, found the weapon. But uh, and that was the only evidence that we had was the firearms evidence. Now the there was a witness, a neighbor, who just immediately after the shot was fired, that had looked out the window and according to, to their description, had seen a dark-colored, probably a sedan, four-door, driving away at what they would call a you know, high speed or, or that kind of thing. Now, the problem with that was is that, that, of course, we don't know if that car had anything to do with anything. But, you know, we have to presume that they may have. and having no license plate or anything else to determine what that specific car was, then we were, it was just kind of another, another fact that was put into the big pile, but it didn't really, we didn't really derive any, any uh, affirmative link to the, to the crime scene. While nondescript, this dark sedan would be a key piece of evidence in Ash's death. He said they, and didn't, identify a person familiar or didn't look familiar so either his brain after being shot didn't work to where he was naming a name or he didn't 
know the people, but again, why would he open the door if he didn't recognize the faces at night? Did you hear the shot? No, I did not. No, no. The neighbors across the street did. And they reported when they looked at their kitchen window, they heard the noise. They, I'm not sure they were able to identify it as a gunshot at that point. But they looked out and they saw someone run from the front door to this dark sedan car. And, and there was a driver. So somebody was waiting in the car. There was a driver and a shooter. There's something that's very positive here. And that is that we know from eyewitnesses that there were two people that night involved in Ash's murder. So those two people are somewhere in Houston, Texas, or maybe who knows where they've gone to now, but they know, and if they're still alive, they've talked. They've talked to somebody else. So if they were hired to kill Ash, sooner or later, somebody's going to say something. And Charlotte is still bothered by how Ash's murder took place. How can somebody walk up to your front door on a Friday night in a neighborhood where people are walking? I mean, Obviously, they watched, you know, and then they took their their best shot, literally mm-hmm. speaking. Literally. But, 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 you know, there somebody could have popped up. Somebody could have ridden down the street at that moment, and it right. was not even completely dark yet. It was like twilight. It's a pretty ballsy, um, pretty ballsy execution. Did Ash know his killer or killers? Detective Waters knew he would have a challenging case of who done it ahead of him. I assume you and uh, Detective Harris at the time created a, a victimology um, of Ash. What did you guys learn about him? Well, right. That, that's, you know, we have to do that um, for every person. We want to know what their background is. We want to know, because this, this up front, there was no particular explanation as to why someone would do this to this guy uh he was a craft beer uh, he was in the craft beer business uh, with his mother and the mother and the father the father at the time had alzheimer's and and they lived two doors down from them when this happened and there was nothing to indicate that you know there's a danger in the craft beer business and until you start to peel the onion back and, you know, eventually a uh, certain aspect of a person's life starts to stink. And um, that's what we found with Ash. So we found that there were some conflicts within the business between Rat, between uh, Ash and his wife's brothers or a brother uh, that was working for the company. There had been a series of lawsuits between that person and and Charlotte and Ash and the company and so forth and so on. And the it looked like there was a lot of hostility in that particular area. Do you love listening to this podcast? Well, we love that you are here to listen. Do you ever wonder what it's like to create a listening experience like this week to week? Do your friends always tell you that you should have a podcast? Well, now is your chance. Our podcast network, Podcast One, is looking for the next podcast star. Think it could be you? If so, enter the self-made podcast competition now to find out. 
And all you have to do is visit launchpad1.com slash self-made for a chance to win a contract with Podcast One. And it's valued at over $100,000 in promotion and so much more. That's a lot. Okay, so enter now until September 3rd and tell all of your friends to listen and download. Go to launchpad1.com slash self-made to find out more, see official rules, and sign up for your chance to win. That's launchpad1.com slash self-made. Was it a murder for hire or did Ash know the person at the other end of the barrel? One thing is for sure, Ash was the target of an assassination. To learn about Ash and what may have led to his death, you have to learn about the nature of the family business. Charlotte Rowell, Ash's mother, was the owner of one of the largest wine and spirits distribution and importation companies in Texas, Duff Beer and McDuff Imports. Ash was murdered in February of 2013, but a series of events just a few years earlier would possibly play a role in his murder. Ash had a law degree, and he had been in and out of some internships that he wasn't really happy with. And he said, you know, I really like to work in the family business. So he came into our business, and Ash was never an owner of Duff Beer. Duff Beer was a subsidiary of our larger company, McDuff Imports, at the time. But he was very adamant about that. He said, you know, I, I, I want to build this company, and then we can build it to a certain stage. And I believe that with craft beers doing as well as they're doing in the current market, that at some point in the future, We'll have a nice company and we'll probably be able to sell it. And sell it they did, making a significant profit. But not before Charlotte and Ash had a falling out with one of their employees, Brian Lamb, the brother of Ash's wife, Leslie. And what happened when he stopped working for you guys in 2009? I understand his relationship with Duff kind of soured and started to go south. It did. It did. There were some bookkeeping discrepancies that I didn't care for. And uh, I warned Brian and asked him to not do that again. And uh, it continued. So I finally just told Brian he was going to have to leave the company. He was not um, performing as he should be. He was not producing anything and had gotten some of the other employees upset. Uh, with his way of handling things, and then the financial situation, the, the issues that we had there with the bookkeeping were just not acceptable. So on the second uh, warning, I just told him he needs to leave the company, and he was very, very hostile. Are you saying um, that he was stealing that, money, or could you elaborate on uh, what you didn't like about the bookkeeping? There was there were some loans that were made to the company from Brian, and then the money was taken back out of the account shortly after that. So that wasn't – we never asked – for a loan from Brian. So that was not, it was not what you call gap bookkeeping. It was not, it was just not what you want your books to look like. That should never happen. And so I asked him not to put any more money through our account. And what was Brian's uh, reaction to being terminated? uh, Brian turned around and sued the company and myself and Ash saying that he had part ownership in the company, which was laughable because again, you don't own any kind of beverage distribution company in Texas unless you have a license 
to distribute beer, wine, and spirits. And my husband and myself were the only holders of those licenses ever. So Brian Lamb, ergo, could not have been an owner in Dash. Ash was never an owner, so why would Brian have been? But Brian Lamb felt he was owed more after being terminated. And during the lawsuit, depositions were taken of both Brian and Ash. So during this lawsuit, there was depositions, correct? With Brian Lamb and with Ash. What happened during those depositions? Uh, Brian would, uh, he was very um, arrogant, I guess would be a good word, with facial expressions and during one specific, um, when I was given my deposition, he kept putting his wrists together, uh, like basically a lot, you're going to be locked up, like handcuffs, going to jail. And uh, I finally had to, to stop and just say, I'm, I'm not going to continue to talk until you control your client to his attorney. And then when Ash was giving his de- deposition, Brian took his forefinger and pulled it across his throat like as if you're maybe threatening to cut someone's throat. Mr. Rao, could you state your name for the record, please? Ashley Scott Rao. Uh, I'm Marty Hill, or Martin Hill, and I, along with Philip Rackerson from my office, represent Brian Lamb in this litigation. I think you understand that, but I want to make sure for the record. So, Melissa, Charlotte provided us with a copy of Ash's deposition video, and I'd like to play a couple of minutes for you. This first one happened about one hour and 45 minutes into Ash's deposition. Excuse me, Counselor. Uh, I think your client's videotaping me. I doubt it. We're videotaping it right there. Well, yeah, but that's his personal video camera. Uh, I, I, we're already videotaping you, so if you want a copy of the videotape, we're going to get a copy. You can have a copy, too, if you want. Right. So there's, there's no need. He's looking at his phone as far as I know, but I don't really care. There's no need to do that. Or to have ugly looks back and forth, as I understand what's going on the other day. He's and already he's already threatened me three times today by motioning that he was going to cut my neck. I've been threatened before, and I feel that he might be taking video to send to someone else. That's so. not responsive. Who is he sending a video to? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. It's stunning for me because his life was taken execution style in a premeditated, seemingly professional hit, and this to me is a clear path for police to now question Brian Lamb as a suspect. This is motive. Now, this next clip is in reference to when Brian was let go from Duff Beer. A moment ago, uh, we talked about the uh, possible uh, physical threats that you felt or felt were being thrust upon you uh, by either my client or, I guess, his relatives or acquaintances. Is that you recall that conversation? Yes. Anybody specifically ever make a threat against you uh, by Brian Lamb himself or anyone on behalf of Brian Lamb make a threat against you directly? Yes. Who was that? Mr. Lamb. Brian Lamb? Yes. Okay. When was that? Uh, beginning of June 2010. 
Okay. What did he say? He said, if you get rid of me, bad things will happen to you and your business. That doesn't sound like a physical threat. Or did you take it as a physical threat? I took it as a physical threat. Okay. Anything else? Yes. What else? My wife has received two text messages. Okay. One of those was produced during Brian Lamb's deposition? Yes. And do you remember the rough description in that? I know I'm going to get your husband and his mom. They can't hide from me. Okay, the one said you can't hide. Yes. Okay. And that was actually by Rick Lamb. Is that right? Yes. Do you remember when that was? January or February. January, I want to say, of 2011. Now, this is a more than enough for the Lamb brothers, all of them, to be interrogated, and that hasn't happened. It's chilling how many threats multiple times to take this man's life to him directly, to his wife, the Lamb brother's sister, and detectives don't think this is a motive for murder? I think they're just being very lackluster in their efforts to lock down proper interrogations. Hey, Killer Jeans listeners and fans, now... We know that you love a good mystery as much as we do. So we want to tell you about a free to download game called June's Journey. Now, June's Journey is a hidden object murder mystery game where you get to play June Parker, who goes on a mission to solve the murder of her sister and brother-in-law. And we've joined the 30 million fans across the globe entranced with this game. I love finding the hidden objects and collecting clues, and we think you will too. Who doesn't want to play detective? And the cool part is, is that each level, there's a scene that is associated with the double murder set in the 1920s, and you have to use your powers of observation and your quick thinking to get through the details to unlock more clues and complete the levels to help you solve the mystery. What I love about this game is how visual and detailed it is. It really brings you into June's journey and the case itself. Now, Melissa, I don't know about you, but I have not stopped playing June's journey since I downloaded it. And I just love the challenges and I look forward to each new level. I know. Same. So download June's journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. The threats did not stop. Did Brian make threats against you personally? No, but um, Rick sent a text when this was all going on to uh, Ash saying, give my brother what he wants. Are you? Rick Lamb is Brian's brother. Something to the effect of you and your mother, I know where you live. And both Ash and I felt that this was enough of a threat that we reported uh, each respectively to our local police precinct that this threat had been made, that we felt, I felt threatened by it. The threat from Rick Lamb was also noted in Ash's deposition. 
Was the other communication from someone on behalf of Brian Lum that you thought was... Um, from Rick Lom's cell phone number, a text came in that said, if your husband doesn't handle this in a way that makes me happy, I'll take care of him my way. Was that uh, produced during Mr. Lom's deposition the other day? No. Why not? I need to go get the police report for it. Did you file a police report? I did. This is frustrating to listen to because Ash Rao knew what was coming. Maybe he didn't want to believe it, but he knew it was a possibility. And then you have his wife. If she feared her brothers, did she turn her head to the murder or does she fear for her own life? During Brian's deposition, he was asked about some vandalism to the warehouse and about his own brother's threats. Are you responsible for the vandalism that was done to the premises of, uh, of uh, uh, Duff Beer and Wine and uh, McDuff after you were terminated? Of course not. We get vandalized all the time down there. We put spray paint. I'm the one that go out there and clean the van when they spray paint and everything. It's a bad neighborhood. Um, and are you sure that your brother had nothing to do with it? Like I said again, I don't think he had anything to do with it. He's his own person. I don't know. I don't live with him. I don't think he did it. You're aware that your brother's made threats? No. You're aware your brother's made threats to uh, your sister? No. I don't talk to my sister. That's Again, that's because of the relationship we had here. But you did. You do talk to your brother. I talk to my brother time. In fact, yeah. He was here earlier yeah. today, right? Mm -hmm. You talked to him at lunch? Yeah. Did you talk to him about the threats he'd made? No. Why not? Because, like I told you, I don't know. If he didn't make the threat, why we pin it on him? Have you have proof that he made that threat? Did you ask him if he made a threat? I don't bother to ask him. It'd be wrong for him to be threatening uh, Ashrael, right? I'm, that's correct. Be wrong to be threatening uh, uh, his family, correct? Yeah. Be wrong to be threatening your sister. Yeah, but I think whether it's wrong or right, that's his 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 own person. I can tell him. But when we would ask all the time, I told him, you know, all the time, whether he's good or bad, he's my brother. I'm still going to talk to him. But you're not going to talk to him about not threatening you around. That's his business. That's not mine. It had nothing to do with So it's okay with you? No, it's not okay. It's still not okay. So, Melissa, after hearing that, what do you think of Brian denying any knowledge of Rick's threats? Well, he's speaking in a way that I think many would to protect a sibling or loved one. Now, focus in on his wording. He is setting himself up to free any future accessory charge, and he certainly did not say no, he wasn't involved with 100% conviction, and that stood out. After Brian left Duff Beer in 2009, it wasn't until 2011 when Charlotte, Ash, and Brian settled their dispute. As you ladies know, you can sue a ham sandwich these days for anything, and um, so I had to defend that lawsuit, and we finally settled with Brian. 
to call. And, and we thought he was out of our hair at that point. But Brian wouldn't necessarily be out of their hair because Ash was married to Brian's sister, Leslie. In fact, it was Brian who introduced Ash and Leslie in 2005. And what did you think of Leslie? I liked her because Ash loved her. And, you know, I'm, I'm open to whatever my kids want to do with their lives. I'm open to that. And um, so, yeah, I, I didn't feel like I had a bad relationship with Leslie from the get-go. I, I liked her. I thought she was very kind. And I, I didn't have a problem when he said, you know, we're going to get married. Because it was it was obviously they were going to have a baby. It got I said I remember telling Ash I think maybe you got the cart before the horse a little bit, but you can you know you can make these things work. So um, they they met I think in like December, and by the next I don't remember when it was probably April or so they were married. So it's kind of a whirlwind romance. The case of Ash Rowell plays out like a textbook family drama. So to recap and make sure everyone is following, Ash and Charlotte Rowell had a successful beverage import and distribution company. Brian Lamb was fired from Duff Beer in 2009 due to shady financial moves. He sued the Rowell family when they sold the company in 2011, claiming he was part owner, which we know he was not. Now, after a lengthy lawsuit with threats made during that time by Leslie's brothers, Brian and Rick, Charlotte settled with Brian Lamb for $250,000. With the sale of Duff Beer signed and the lawsuit with Brian over, Ash was really looking forward to time off to spend with his wife and kids. But all that would change in a matter of minutes with one shot, one bullet. Houston PD original detective Phil Waters started to dig into Ash's past, looking for any clues that might point to who wanted Ash dead. When you when you reviewed the video from from the, the from the depositions on the civil case between Brian Lamb and Ash Rowell, was there anything in those conversations that that really stood out to you as possibly being connected? You know that this civil suit or Brian Lamb could be connected to the murder of Ash Rowell? Um, we actually, we subpoenaed, requested all of the documentation and case file for the civil suit that Brian Lamb and Charlotte and Ash Rowell embroiled in. That was some interesting reading. And uh, then as it turns out, I think uh, Brian gets a, you know, he gets a, a, a nominal amount of money, but then Ash and Charlotte turn around and sell the rights to the beer company, to the craft beer company, uh, for a pretty good sum of money. And, of course, one of the theories was is that Brian felt like he had been shorted on that deal, that they'd gotten away with it, and that was part of the revenge factor. Um and then there was a theory that that it, it was Brian who may have wanted it done, but it was Rick who actually carried it out because Rick was the one that was, again, kind of a loose cannon in the family. There were um, some, uh, I think, is the last Ash's car had been burglarized, laptop stolen, that kind of thing. And Ash had a couple of cell phones. So then there was the talk about uh, an assistant that he had, uh, 
uh, a female that had would go to him to different craft beer events and that kind of thing. And then there was the discussion that he was having an affair with her and that Leslie had made the comment that if I ever catch you screwing around on me, I'll kill you, you know, that kind of thing. We don't know if that was made in jest or if that was made in a serious manner. So a lot of, a lot of information coming in that really it, it was, it, it, it clouded the investigation more than it clarified. Ash Rowell had been murdered, and detectives are ramping up their investigation. Did his past come back to haunt him? If so, what does that mean for Ash's mother, Charlotte? If they got Ash in 2013, do you think that there was possibly a hit put out on you or a murder for hire put out on you as well if this was some sort of business dealing? You know, I, I've thought about that. I don't think so. I mean, obviously, I, I'm i always concerned for, for my own safety, but I think my my punishment from these people was to watch and experience my own son's death. I mean, that's worse than being killed yourself. We reached out to the Houston Police Department for comment, but they declined our interview request due to the case being an open and active investigation. On the next episode of Killer Genes, part two of our investigation into the death of Ash Rowell. Is Ash's murderer someone in his own family? You and your husband were potential suspects. Did oh, you know that? scattergunned. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely know that. I mean, they scattergunned everyone. Or someone even closer. Do you think uh, Leslie knows more than she's leading on to? That's a difficult question to answer. And is money the root of all evil? I think I even interrupted. Why would you need a life insurance policy for a million bucks? Charlotte told me that she had found that that Leslie and possibly Ash were actually embezzling from the company. This has been Killer Jeans. Follow us at mudhousemedia.com.